You can look at a startup and see a million things wrong, a million things on fire. But what you really need to do is dream with the company and think about what it could turn into and what it could look like and how the future could look if this company does all the right things and executes in the right way and builds the right foundations. VCs are investing in a dream. You should focus on helping them understand what the world could look like if you're successful. The ability to, to speak to narratives and to really frame an argument and explain how the world could be is really key to, to telling a, a business story. Welcome to another episode of The Backbone, a podcast exploring the journey of finance and operations within tech companies. I'm your host, Shabam Data at Shabam on Twitter. If this is your first episode, welcome, and thanks for checking it out. For those returning listeners, I'm so glad you're here. I hope that you've subscribed, rated, and reviewed the show on whichever platform you're hearing this now. It would mean so much to me and help spread the stories of these amazing finance leaders we feature on The Backbone. Joining me on this episode of The Backbone is Julian Rollins, head of finance at Spruce, a New York City-based prop tech company on a mission to build the one-click checkout for real estate transactions. Prior to joining Spruce, Julian worked in Jakarta, Indonesia as the CFO of Zendit, where he helped the company raise a Series B funding round from investors including Excel and Y Combinator. Julian has also lived and worked in Myanmar Uganda, and Mali, and has experience operating in Bangladesh and Kenya. He is particularly interested in emerging markets and API-first fintech startups. Julian graduated from Rutgers with a BA and earned his MBA from Chicago Booth. You can find him on Twitter at Julian underscore Rollins. And so without further ado, here's Julian Rollins, head of finance at Spruce. Julian, thank you so much for joining me on The Backbone. We've got lots to cover. We had our initial conversation and catch up and your story is just fascinating. So I want to start with that. When we had chatted earlier, you had mentioned you were the first in your family to go into business. You had started as a history major before going into business school at UChicago. Talk to me about your career journey so far and how you got to your current role as a VP of finance at Spruce. I never imagined that I would be ahead of finance, especially not at a company that's on, on Spruce's trajectory. And it was a very unconventional and outlandish path. And lo looking back, the dots look like a line in retrospect, but it's a pretty weird journey. So bear with me. I was actually a history major. My mom's a journalist. And so growing up, it was always just kind of a known thing that it was going to be, you know, some parents are engineer, doctor, lawyer, and we never had this explicit conversation, but it was in my mind, the only options were history major, English major, classics major, creative writing major. So then the financial crisis happens. And I'm in college, I'm happily reading about 17th century French warfare. And all of a sudden the world is over and the headlines are set. Like, I can't really interpret the headlines of what they're saying, but like the world has ended and I'm going to graduate without a job. Like my entire future has fallen apart, but I can't tell why. I don't understand what the headlines are saying. I, I can't knit that together with my own life. It was just a really shocking experience and I, I wanted to get to the bottom of it. Um, I understand why I wasn't going to ever have a job. So I started taking courses in econ with the goal of figuring out what on earth was happening. And then 
slowly got more and more interested in the business side of the world and decided, even though I'm a history major, I'm going to try to go and carve out a role for myself in, in the business world. So after my senior year, landed a job uh, with a company focused on software products for hedge funds and wound up specializing in hedge fund data warehouses. It turned out to be a good fit for me because I, I like computers. I'm good with computers and I'm, I enjoy problem solving. And I mean, hedge funds are not chill at all. So I had to learn how to keep cool under pressure. And then also got to, you know, the wild experience of, of being 24, 25 and walking to a hedge fund on my own and, and talking to a COO or a CFO who's managing $2 billion or something. Again, needing to keep cool under pressure. And then also learned how to be a translator. Learned how to speak to those people in finance, if you will, and then come back to the office and get on the phone with the developer and speak to that person in, in software and sort of code switch and translate. So I knew after this whole experience that I'd been right, that the business world was the right space for me. And so it kind of made sense to go to business school and, and build out a, a more well-rounded business toolkit and somehow got into Chicago booth, which was one of my dream schools, which is, was absolutely life-changing. I remember the, the Chicago area code ringing on my phone and I, I picked up and said something along the lines of holy shit. And then I don't remember anything else from the, the conversation. There was a very nice woman on the other line. I wish I'd been more collected. And so there I was. And I knew I had about six months between that day and when I had to be in Chicago. And maybe the smart thing would have been to stay exactly where I was, save as much money as I could and try to graduate with a slightly smaller mountain of debt. But I, I have two half brothers who have spent a lot of time abroad and I'd never had the chance to go do anything like that. And knowing that I was going to be in Chicago in September, I decided, you know, if not now, when? And so went to join my brother's friend's company in Uganda for a six month immersion. I wasn't sure what the trip would look like or what I would get out of it. And I came out of it completely obsessed with emerging markets. I think that if you can create a job in a country with a 25% unemployment rate, it's just a wildly impactful way to be a capitalist. And then everything is on God mode difficulty. Like it's so hard to do even the smallest things that in America I'd always taken for granted. But when you do get things done, it's just such an incredible sense of accomplishment that I really found myself relishing a ton. And so beforehand, I thought I was going to go to Chicago and become a, you know, management consultant or something and go back and work in New York. And instead I showed up being completely committed to, to spending the next five years or so focused entirely on emerging markets. So for internships, I spent time in Mali and West Africa. I spent time in Kenya. I actually, while living in Bamako, Mali, I, I contracted typhoid, which was according to the, the administration of Booth, I was the only intern who had ever done that. So a, a dubious distinction. And then after graduating, I took on a, a post MBA role with a sort of startup venture fund that was focused on frontier markets and moved to Yangon, Myanmar with them. And the rest of the team was in, in the US, but I, I was the, the person on the ground. And so worked with the entrepreneurs that they worked with in Myanmar that also spearheaded their entry into Bangladesh. So that's, you know, market mapping, the whole country entrance process. And so for a little bit, I was taking a prop plane back and forth from, from Yangon to Dhaka every month or so, which was a, a really cool experience, but definitely challenging being the only person on, on the ground, on my own and doing it all myself. 12 hour time zone differences are zero sum. 
being the only person on the other side of the world was pretty grueling. So left after nine months, knew I wanted to stay in the developing world for a bit longer, but I wanted to work for a local company and, and be able to be immersed with a team and not to be on conference calls at, at 11.30 p.m. at night. And so I wound up taking on a role as CFO of a fintech startup called Zendit based in Jakarta, Indonesia. I don't think I was qualified at the time to be CFO of a similar startup in the U.S., but like an, an emerging market startup was looking for something very different, which is, yes, you need to have finance jobs. Yes, you need to be able to talk to American VCs, but you also need to be comfortable living and operating in an emerging market. If there's a crazy protest or something outside and people are lighting things on fire in the street, you have to, you know, not freak out or if the air quality index spikes above 200 or something like you need to be able to put up with quite a bit and be very comfortable being uncomfortable. I definitely was capable of that. And then interestingly, they also were looking for a comfort with data systems. So if you're a high volume fintech company that moves money as part of your, your business and, and Zendit is a, a payments uh, technology company, think Stripe for Southeast Asia then you need to be able to automate as much as your finance suite as possible because those transactions need to feed directly into your books. And so being able to speak engineering and interface with a product team and an engineering team was a surprisingly helpful thing for that specific role. I got absolutely thrown in the deep end, worked 80, 90 hours a week for a couple months just to force myself to, to level up as fast as I could on the parts of the CFO craft that I didn't bring to the table when I started out and also connected with as many experienced finance leaders through my network as I could. People are really down to help someone who's coming up. And I got to connect with the CFOs of, of a firm, Brex, OpenAI, ZoomInfo, and a, a couple more folks who were really, really generous with their time and, and who I, I still am in touch with to this day. And that really helped me go from being a total rookie to feeling quite comfortable in the role. Spent a year and a half there. It was a great experience. Saw the business scale from about 80 employees to around 200. Raised a $64 million Series B from Excel and YC and a few other VCs who I really respect and think highly of. And looked up and had been away from home for five years, almost. And wanted to be near my mom, who's in New Jersey. And realized that, you know, she, she'd been very patient throughout the whole thing. I'd been incredibly supportive as I, as I sort of fell down this rabbit hole, although she didn't love the motorcycle. But at the same time, I'd been away and I wanted to be back close to her. That was really important to me. So started transitioning back to the States in fall 2019. And through a friend got connected with Spruce. And this friend worked at uh, one of their investors. And right away realized there was a, a really good fit there. So B2B fintech infrastructure backed by super smart money like Bessemer, really great culture, really kind, high confidence, low ego, which is a wonderful thing to work for. As was ended, I was candid about what I do and don't bring to the table. I'm not a CPA. I've never been a bolt bracket investment banker. Th that's not who I am. But if you're looking for someone who's scrappy and creative, who can find original solutions to original problems, who can operate comfortably, you know, at the intersection of finance and product and data, and who can operate with kindness and with a good sense of humor, even when the pressure's on, that is me. So never expected to lead finance orgs. And when I shipped off to Myanmar in, in 2017, I definitely didn't see myself winding up in the seat. But it's been an incredible journey and I don't think I changed a thing. That's awesome. And there's so much to unpack there, Julian. I'm excited to unpack all of that. But before we do, maybe tell me a little bit about Spruce, what the company does and what it's all about. Spruce is a prop tech company that's on a mission to build one-click checkout for real estate transactions. And 
what we literally do is uh, the exchange of money and rights for online real estate transactions. So I love to know the company Stripe. Stripe handles the exchange of money for e-commerce. We handle both the exchange of money as well as the exchange of rights between two parties in a residential real estate transaction. What that's called in industry parlance and real estate parlance is title insurance, coordination, escrow, recording services. And so we offer all of those through proprietary technology and with centralized teams. And then we can add transparency and a ton of speed to a, a process that's otherwise pretty opaque and tight. In terms of the advantages that adds up to, we can save homeowners up to 20% of closing costs. We can shave a quarter uh, of the time of, that would take a transaction to close. And we can enable funding times that are, that are unrestricted or less restricted of federal bank hours. And just to take a step back, there's a clear need for completely new infrastructure to power the world of online real estate. First is focused on bringing a process that's been offline and local to be online and scalable. And it's been a really exciting journey. I joined in February, 2020, so I had three glorious weeks in the office. And the first year has been, you know, definitely a wild ride for a ton of reasons. But one of the more exciting things is we just had tremendous traction. I think we grew about like 490% in the first 12 to 13 months with, with the company. And then headcount has, has definitely grown a ton as well. But when I look ahead, I think that's where I get even more excited right now. Digitally enabled real estate transactions make about 1% of the real estate market. And for context, that's what e-commerce was as a percentage of retail back in the year 2000. So I think this is really day one for digitally enabled real estate. And I think there's a massive pie that we're taking aim at. And I think the future is really bright. That's awesome. And those growth numbers that you talked about is definitely eye-opening. And if truly it is day one, well, I'm really excited about the, the, the future ahead. You talked about being early at Spruce. I think previously we had talked about when you joined your, I think, employee number 75 or somewhere around that number. In the last 16 months, the company has tripled, to your point, around headcount growth. I think you guys are now over 250 folks. As the head of finance, talk to me about how you inherited the finance function and how it has evolved to accommodate this hyper growth at the company. So there's a couple sort of frameworks and principles that I try to keep in mind when I'm working to scale a finance function. I think the, the one that's most key is know thyself. So to my point earlier, like I'm not a CPA. And so when it comes to really understanding what big four auditors will look for and what sort of standards we'll need to, uh, what bars we need to pass on the accounting side, that's definitely not my bread and butter. So first thing uh, I did when I took over the finance world was to go out and find someone who, who could bring all that to the table. Someone who'd been, you know, ideally a, an ex big four auditor, but had also been out in house in a couple of uh, tech companies. And so could both speak to the theory and, and the level of scrutiny that an outside party would apply, but then also speak to the right way to build that. And was lucky enough to hire our, a really great accounting leader who's been wonderful. She's great and basically gave her run to run, which kind of leads to the second thing I try to keep in mind, which is there's a broad variety of outcomes that could possibly wind up happening in a in startup world. The safest way to structure things, particularly on the accounting side, is to solve for the highest bar that you'll possibly have to be. So in the accounting world, that's PCAOB level audits that you're going to have to pass if you're so lucky as the IPO. Once we had our, our rockstar accounting leader in-house, step two was say, okay, I think within a couple of years, we'd like to have the capacity 
to to beat that threshold scrutiny. You know where we are today. Build us a roadmap from here to there, and then tell us what you need from us in order to go and execute on that, and who you need to hire and what process you need to build. Which then leads to another principle for building the team in, in beneath her, which is outsource your volume and in-house for quality. So especially a high volume business involving moving money around like bank reconciliations, things like that scale pretty quickly, but you're not careful. You're going to have a, you know, a team of in-house, which is not a, not a CEO's dream and not a thing I, I want to explain to the board. So getting an offshore team to handle those functions that scale in terms of volume definitely made sense for us. And then for things that really require really, really high quality, go ahead and bring in some, some more junior folks who, who come from big four companies and have really great foundations on the accounting side. I think going back to the know thyself thing, I've kind of spoken to the accounting world a bit so far, but know thyself, what I can do is I can't handle investor relations. I can't handle FP&A. Those are things I'm super comfortable with. And so own that entire thing myself for a little bit. But then leading to another principle is understanding when you're hired for decision-making versus hiring for execution. So about six months back, realized I need help doing all the executing that has to happen. So went out and hired someone who's a bit more junior you know, had great foundations coming from a, a big a leadership program at a big bank. He's been wonderful and just an absolute beast executing. And then recently looked up and realized, okay, there's so many decisions need to be made. I need help making these decisions. And so at this point, we're going out, we're looking for someone who can go and bring in some pretty heavy header leadership capacity on the FP&A side. So if you're out there and you're looking for your rock star director of FP&A, yeah, jobs.lever.co slash Bruce, that shameless plug. And then the last thing I do, it sounds kind of insane to say, but your job changes every three to six months. My job right now is so different from what it was a year ago. And so a thing I do to try to force myself to like get my head on straight, given where I, where I am now, is ask myself the question, why would I fire me? Given where Spruce is now, given what our needs are now, like what are things that this company needs that I absolutely have to make sure on if I want to be I want to continue being Spruce's finance leader. And so that's a question that, that led to, you know, not if, if we don't have enough FP&A decision-making capacity, if we're not thinking more about competition and markets and uh, future-proofing ourselves, like, yeah, that's, that's a thing that would be a, a tough conversation to have. So now's the right time to go out and fill that seat. That makes a lot of sense. And I really like that, the framework that you articulated around what's the capacity that you need. Is it executional capacity or is it decision-making capacity. That's a really good distinction between the types of roles that you're going to be looking for and expanding the team with. So I really like that framework. All credit there to, to Spruce's uh, rockstar head of people operations, Emmy. She's, that's, I'm entirely pilfering her, uh, her framework there. So nice. all credit to her. Switching gears now to the fundraising processes, both at uh, Spruce and at Send it. In June of 2021, you alluded to Spruce having raised a $60 million Series C round from Bessemer, Scale Venture Partners, and Zig Capital. When you were at Zendit, you had helped the company raise a $65 million Series B round from Excel, amongst others. What are some of your biggest learnings going through these fundraising processes? When I was Living in Chicago as a grad student, I remember going to a presentation that a partner from Y Combinator came to give. And I remember one line particularly stood out that kind of rocked my world a bit and helped me understand a bit more how to think about startups and how to think about rapidly scaling operations. 
which is you can look at a startup and see a million things wrong, a million things on fire. But what you really need to do is dream with the company and think about what it could turn into and what it could look like and how the future could look if this company does all the right things and executes in the right way and builds the right foundations. That's really carried over into, into how I operate when fundraising, which is at the end of the day, VCs are investing in a dream. The business that's a currently exists when you're a really early stage startup, there's a million things going wrong. There's a million things on fire. Like just it's, that's, but that's not what they're, that's not what they care about. And that's not what you should focus on. You should focus on helping them understand what the world could look like if you're successful. I think that's actually where the history major actually really kind of goes from being what would could look like a disadvantage to being almost a super weapon and that the ability to, to speak to narratives and to really frame an argument and explain how the world could be is, is really key to, to telling a, a business's story. Another thing though, is no two fundraisers are the same. There's a million different ways to be successful. And it's important to go about your fundraising efforts in a way that's, that's authentic to who you are and then how you see the world. And if someone tells you absolutely have to do X, Y, Z, or, or there's one specific thing you have to do. And if you do any other, any other way, then, then you're crazy. Like don't listen to them, do what feels right for you. And I think it'll be successful. That's good advice for sure. Last question now, before we jump into our quick fire round, Julian, and that is what is the biggest misconception about the finance function within growth stage tech companies like Spruce? So a lot of people coming into startups, their first interaction with the finance team, it becomes kind of clear that they assume that you're there to say no to everything, like no and less rather than yes, if whenever they come to you and to give you a hard time about spending money and about, you know, filing their expense reports and all that and trying to make one dime you. In my mind, what a finance team at a startup should be doing is giving you room to run and getting out of the way. And so that means being really comfortable spending money and really comfortable with people, you know, going out and taking risks. I think the worst thing we could possibly do is go out and, and hire incredibly talented people and then say like, oh, like it, it's not quite justified to give you all the tools you need to go in for, for new prospects or something like that. So in my mind, a startup finance function, things should be moving pretty fast. It should be a bias towards yes, if rather than no, unless. And above all, it should be the function should operate in the service of, of helping the company not protect all the money it has and stay exactly the same and, and resist change, but to grow into that dream that your VCs have bought into when they decided to back you. That makes a lot of good sense. And again, love the, the dichotomy of how one should think about these decisions to your point of not trying to shut everything down and, and being a gatekeeper, but more so how can the finance function enable the teams to be successful. I, I like that framework. What I'd love to do now is jump into our quick fire round. The way this works is I'll ask you a few questions. You'll have 10 to 15 seconds to respond to each. How's that sound? Sounds great. Let's do it. All right. What is your go-to online resource for all things finance related? Accountingcoach.com. Swear to God, it is awesome. I try to go on there, you know, every other month or so and just just make sure I'm staying uh, staying fresh on my debits and credits. Nice. That is a new one. I have not heard of that specific resource before, but I will have to check that out myself. What's your favorite productivity hack? This one goes back to know thyself as well. Accountability. Telling someone I'm going to do something and promising something to someone by a certain time, even if it's just for myself, like doing that to, to force myself to make sure I actually follow through and get it done for fear of letting that person down. Nice. What's one thing you don't leave your home office before finishing? Tomorrow's to-do list. 
And are you a paper pen to-do list person or do you use some sort of tool to do that? Our listeners won't be able to see the pen and paper notebook you're pulling up, but paper and pen, love it. What's one jargon that makes you cringe? No question. It's got to be synergies. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's an overused one for sure. What's the best advice you received so far in your career? My mom has always been a great source of advice and, and wisdom. But one of my favorites that she that she mentioned recently is criticize by category and praise by name. When people are doing things well, call them out by name, make sure that they know that they're that they're seeing. And then if there's something you see you don't like, be be delicate, you know, and be gentle. We're all doing our best. Yeah, nice. I love that. Well, Julian, this has been an amazing conversation. I really appreciate the time. It was great learning about your unconventional path into finance, which was a a lot to unpack there, talking about Spruce, what the company does, and how you have thought about scaling the finance function at Spruce and your advice and wisdom on fundraising processes. This has been a pleasure and I really enjoyed our conversation. So thank you so much, Julian. Thanks for having me, Shivam. This was awesome. Thanks. Take care. And that wraps up another episode of The Backbone. Check out some of the other awesome finance leaders featured on The Backbone from companies like Ecobee, Wealthsimple, League, and many more. Thank you for listening all the way through and joining me on this journey inside finance at a tech company. Until next time, take care.